What if, to have a chance at a normal life, you had to amputate your leg? And what if even then, there were no guarantees? Hi, this is Jennifer Dykes, Chief of Communications at the Salt Lake City VA. On this episode of Upholding Valor, Army veteran and IED survivor Bryant Jacobs takes us to moments before a bomb changed his life forever. Jacob shares his struggle to return to normalcy after the Iraq War and of the harrowing decision to amputate his leg. However, his story doesn't end there. In 2015, Jacobs and another veteran became the first two patients in the U.S. to undergo an experimental procedure, one that could help them and America's nearly two million amputees take the literal steps toward a better life. Today we check in with Jacobs to see how he's progressing and speak with Dr. Serena Sinclair, the prosthetic research scientist at the Salt Lake City VA who helped pioneer this extraordinary treatment. The whole country got this sense of patriotism that some didn't even know they had. I feel like after 9-11 happened, I wasn't really where I wanted to be in life. And I said, you know what? I'm going to join the Army. So I called my parents, said, hey, this is what I want to do. And they supported me. And the rest is, you know, just paperwork. (laughs) All right. My name is Bryant Jacobs. I was a specialist in the U.S. Army as a combat engineer. Each platoon in our company was was assigned to a whole company of infantrymen. So we were on a regular route clearance mission. We had drove the road to make sure it was clear for everybody else to drive on that day. And we didn't see anything. And then we had to backtrack about 20, 30 minutes to go pick up some guys and escort them to the big airbase in Kirkuk. And in just that like 45 minute time span, they were able to place an IED and we drove over it and um, got blown up. I was on the passenger side and that's where the IED was and it came from under us. And I remember being blown out of the truck um, and I landed on my stomach and we were going, you know, 50 miles an hour. So I, I remember I, I felt like the wind got knocked out of me and I couldn't breathe. And I just kept telling myself, you know, I'm okay. I just need to catch my breath and and get up and, and you know, make sure everybody else is okay. There was five of us. Um, one guy died on site. One guy got a little piece of shrapnel on his shoulder and returned to work the same day. And then the two in the front, uh, they were fine. As I'm pushing myself up, I I noticed that uh, part of my trigger finger was missing. And I could see the bone. And and this is all in slow motion. It it probably was seconds, you know, but to me it felt like a long time. And I remember thinking how cool it was that I could see my own bone. And, uh, and that's kind of when it sank in it sank in that that i couldn't get up for some reason i couldn't figure out what was going on and why i couldn't get up and and i i remember feeling like my body was on fire like it just burned everywhere um which i didn't get burned but that's how it felt to me um i got hit all over my my body and and so my guys flipped me over my on my back and started taking off my gear and stuff like that and they put me on a litter as they're calling the nine line in for a medevac and they didn't think I was going to make it. So they threw me in the back of one of the Humvees and they started driving because we were only 10, 15 minutes away from, you know, the big airbase. So 
I remember my buddy slapped me in the face telling me, you know, you got to stay awake, keep talking to me. And I just kept telling him I was tired. I said, I just want to go to sleep. And he's like, no, you can't, you know, you got to keep talking to me. And, and, uh, so before we got to the big air base, the, the medevac helicopter landed. And as they're carrying me, I, I, f- I felt excruciating pain. Well, it broke my femur right above my knee. And instead of my leg falling off and my knee bending, it bent where my femur had broke, and, and it was so painful. They put me on the, the medevac helicopter, and, and you could feel the, the percussion of the, the blades of the helicopter. And I'm just like, wow, what is going on? It was a short stint on, on the medevac, and, and they put me onto a stretcher and started wheeling me into the emergency room in Kirkuk. I was being wheeled on asphalt, and I could feel every bump, and it was so painful. And I still couldn't figure out what was going on. And then the last thing I remember is, is a couple of doctors were standing over me, and, and the hands were just covered in blood. And then I woke up three weeks later in Walter Reed. I remember how hard that was to deal with um, mentally, but I didn't have a lot of time to feel sorry for myself. It was, let's get through surgeries. Let's get through all of this stuff that I have to get through so I can keep going. You have to go through occupational therapy and make sure you can wash yourself, you can bathe, you can cook, you can clean, all this stuff. And, and then you had to go through your med board, which took forever. I came to Utah and lived with my grandparents for a while. I was out of my wheelchair. I walked around with a cane 24-7, thought, you know what, I need to go back to school. And so I applied to the University of Utah and got accepted, and that was that was my next journey in life. It's a huge mind thing of being a 20-something-year-old, walking around on a cane, feeling like you're 90, you know, and everybody else is just walking all the way across campus or they're on their bikes or skateboards or whatever, and I couldn't do that. I was a cripple kid on school. I didn't, I, I didn't want to stand out. I just wanted to fit in. I finally graduated. I had met my wife. I don't know what year I was in school when I met her. She she could tell you that, but I have no idea. <laughs> um, and she helped me break out of that shell. You know, she accepted me for who I was, and we were on our very first date. I remember asking her, would you still want to be with me if I amputated my leg? And without hesitation, she said, yes, absolutely. And to me, that's where I knew that she was the one. But at the same time, I couldn't blame her, you know, to... If she would have said no, I couldn't blame her. You know, it, it's difficult. It's it's hard to be married to somebody or, or with somebody that is disabled because, you know, it's hard. She's my life. And I know she's going to be there for me forever. And I wanted to marry her. So I started saving my money. And I asked her dad if I could marry her. And I proposed and just all these life things kept happening to where I just kept putting off amputation. I didn't want to be in a wheelchair for my wedding. I accepted the fact that I'd be on a cane and, 
you know, it is what it is and you go from there. After we got married, my wife and I sat down and we had the talk of amputation. And she said, you know, you've been talking about it for a long time. I can't make the decision for you, but if you're going to do it, now's the time to do it. We can, we can make it through this. And just those words were astounding to me because I knew that she was going to be there for me. I said, okay. I said, you're right. I said, this is the time to do it. And I finally found a surgeon that would amputate my leg. And um, we met with them together. And at that time is when I learned about osseointegration. He drew it on a little napkin and he said, go home and do as much research as you can. Joining us now is Dr. Sinclair, a prosthetic research scientist at the Salt Lake City VA. For nearly a decade before her path intersected with Jacobs, Sinclair had been researching ways to improve prosthetics. Through her research at the VA, Sinclair helped develop an innovative procedure where a titanium rod is inserted into the leg bone and then attached to a prosthetic, allowing amputees greater comfort, efficiency, and stamina. While the surgery wasn't without risks, in Jacobs, Sinclair found a determined patient. And in Sinclair, Jacobs found the hope that had eluded him in the war's aftermath. So my name is Dr. Serena Sinclair. I'm a research scientist at the Salt Lake City VA. I'm also an assistant professor of research at the University of Utah Department of Orthopedics. Uh, My background is in bioengineering, and I started at the Salt Lake City VA about 10 years ago, working on this project well before we started it in humans. So this project is uh, for a new system to connect prosthetic devices. It's called osteointegration. Our first human surgeries were December 15th, and Bryant and one other veteran were the first two patients to receive this implant. The FDA approved us for what's called an early feasibility study. We were one of the first groups ever approved to do that type of study within the U.S., and they approved us to do 10 patients. The VA funded the research, so we chose 10 veterans that were transfemoral or above-knee amputees, and they were the first in the U.S. to receive this type of implant. It's called the percutaneous osseointegrated prosthesis. We call it POP, or the POP study for short, Um, and so far we've had patients out to three and a half years. It's going well. You know, research is, um, it's, maybe slower than we'd like it to go, but it's allowed us time to see how the patients are doing in the long run. We're actually working with the VA, the NIH, and the FDA to approve a larger study, so we're in the middle of all of that, and our goal is to introduce that study to a larger population within the U.S. within the next 6 to 12 months. I first met Brian actually uh, two years before we did his osteointegration Um, surgery. He was a limb salvage patient who had really suffered for the past 10 years. And our orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Eric Kubiak, had spoken with him and Bryant had made the choice that he wanted to consider an amputation. Dr. Kubiak knew that this work was in the pipeline and felt Bryant could be a good candidate for it and discussed, you know, the possibility of this coming in the future. But I first met Bryant, he had just started his rehab for his primary amputation so they just removed the lower part of his limb and he was starting in a socket so I first met Brian actually with um, a patient who had an older amputee and um, he was very new to using the socket and it was really frustrating and you could 
you could sense the frustration, but also the hope that he was going to be able to get to a point where he was more comfortable and be able to use his leg more. Um, I met him and his wife at the same time, and um, I thought they had a great partnership, and you could tell he had the support to, to get where he needed. So um, I knew that he was going to work hard to reach his goals, and I think we all felt like that was why he would also be a good candidate for this study with the new implant system. And I think they knew I was serious. I think they knew that that I wanted to be a part of this groundbreaking surgery. It was There was a lot. There was a lot that went into it, and I made sure I was that person. I lost weight to do it, you know, and... It was something I absolutely knew I wanted to do. Finally said, you're in. And, <laughs> you know, I, I, I had all these mixed emotions because it was becoming real. I had fought for this. I had done everything I could to be a part of this study. He's a persistent guy. But besides that, I think he really, more than anything, just made an impression on the team that we knew that he had goals he wanted to meet, that he was having a lot of difficulty in his socket. Brian and um, his cohort, Ed, were the first two to get this. And, um, you know, it's, it's really emotional for all of us. We have two surgeries, and um, they're about six weeks apart. And after the second surgery, it's only 24 hours before they get their leg on. Um, and then, like I said, it's, it's uh, a great... We try to have our team there, and we actually tried to bring... Um, patients, we staged the surgery. So not all 10 people got it at once. So um, Brian, like I said, Brian and um, his cohort, Ed, were the first two to get this. That was, you know, the way they did it in groups of two was was phenomenal. We, we went through everything together. You know, we went through the first phase together where they implanted the rod and then closed us back up. Uh, surgery one, they implanted the rod in, the, in our femur and closed us back up that was really it it was it, it was they wanted the bone to start growing and around our implants um and and start healing and stuff like that phase two they took like this we'll call it an apple quarter and just cored out a little spot and attached the second part of the implant and then 24 hours later, we were trying to walk again. Yeah, surgery two went, and uh, I don't think Ed and I slept that night. We were uh, we were scheduled to walk the next day. You know, it was 24 hours later, and then we were we were ready to be on our legs. So we wake up the next day, and and we have all this adrenaline and all this anticipation and and all of these emotions going through us and um, we were just ready we were ready to start they attached our legs and for me personally i thought we were just going to start walking that day it wasn't going to be a big deal you know um but it wasn't we were we were trying to put weight on it we were you know we were doing these physical therapy things and um, just learning how to walk again, again and again. You know, it was all of these moments of learning how to walk again was um, took a toll on you mentally, but we were both ready. So 
the first day it was all about just weight shifting trying to put weight on our leg uh, you know on on our prosthetic side and you know this is this monumental moment when he's standing up on his legs for the first time and this is the first two patients that have ever received this implant within the US and we've all worked for so many years to get to this point and you know there's tears in people's eyes and he's standing on his leg and the first thing that comes to his mind is, wow, I can't wait to sit down and go to the bathroom. And everyone just looked like, are you crazy? Like, But honestly, it was a really reality check for us because it took us, brought us back to really how this implant can, something that's so minor for people that don't have amputations. We don't even think about little things like that. And it was, a, it was funny, but it was also a big reality check for us of like how how something that we've been working on was going to make an impact from in all aspects of their lives and they weren't all worried about how far and how fast they could go with it they wanted the simple you know ways that they were going to be comfortable again living their lives for you know the first week I was frustrated I was um, starting to doubt the surgery and doubt myself and and I like I said I was just frustrated and Bart sent me home for a long weekend said, I don't want you on your leg at all. I just want you to rest. And it was right at that two-week mark. And, and I came back and I left the parallel bars that day. You know, I was walking on a crutch and and the pain was subsiding. And, you know, it was becoming easier. And all of these amazing emotions were going on of, wow, this is really going to work. And and I feel better and I'm walking, you know, so, so all of these amazing things are going on, right? For me at week two. Great feeling to see, you know, we've had a couple patients say, oh my gosh, I can sense the ground. I haven't done this since I had my leg. And that's, there's not many things in, uh, in bioengineering where you get that direct patient feedback and see on their faces and that and faces of their family how big of a deal you know that that moment is amputees a lot of times from what we've learned really have to budget their time even high functioning people so they have to really budget what they're going to do during the week over the weekend because their limb either just isn't comfortable their socket or it needs adjustments or they just get tired um, and so I think the main thing, especially Bryant and Ed have discussed with us, is in their experience, it's the fact that they don't have to think about that so much. And they can just plan without thinking, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be up to it that day. Life-changing. Three years. It's, it's, uh, it's funny because it's been... I set all these little goals for myself of, I want to try this. So I would tell Bart, this is what I want to do. And we would figure it out. You know, I want to hike more. I want to hunt more. I want to golf more. I want to do all of these things more and better. And it was just a lot of physical therapy and a lot of uh, vision on Bart's side of how do we get ready for you to walk through the gravel and in the grass and on bumpy stuff. You know, not just plain cement that 
is level. It was, you know, all getting, setting all these goals and trying to figure out how to accomplish them. And, and we did right at the two year mark. I got back on a snowboard. Um, that had been my dream since really being injured. I wanted to snowboard again. It was hard, but you know, I kind of set my expectations a lot higher than I should have. Um, just for the fact that I snowboarded so long before I got hurt and I expected to be on top of the mountain, just going down. And it wasn't like that. It was, it's a lot harder than I thought it would be. Um, the second one, I, I went to New Zealand and, and I had the opportunity to hunt there and we hiked, I don't know, probably two and a half miles over really rough terrain. Um, and that was a huge accomplishment. I didn't think I could ever do that. I didn't think I could ever hike that far, you know? And then this year I had the opportunity to hunt elk in, um, Wyoming. And we hiked almost five miles in the snow. Um, and it was hard. It was hard, but I did it. And I never, I never imagined walking that far, but it's the confidence of being able to do it. And it's everybody at the VA with, um, helping me to that point. My, my family, um, all that stuff just really has sunk in that, that I could really do anything I want to (sighs) do. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds. I don't really... I'd like to get back on a snowboard this year. I think that's going to be my goal um, for for the winter. And then... I don't know. I, I really don't. I don't... I don't know what is going to happen next year. But honestly, nothing's holding me back. It's amazing to live in Utah where the study went through... And I had the opportunity to come up for everybody's surgeries, everybody's first steps, um, all 10 of us. And and that was phenomenal. It was showing guys that you can progress in this and and do whatever you want to do. It was nice to be able to be up here and then ask questions and say, what do I expect here? And be able to answer that. So to me, it, it's been nice just to, to live here and be there for all the rest of the guys. And yeah, osteointegration is going to change the amputee world. Well, this has started at the Salt Lake, Salt Lake City VA. You know, our goal is really to, our goal and the VA's goal is to really bring this to everyone. And it's really supported not just by our local team members, but also by the VA as a whole. And we're really grateful for that and the support it's it's getting and, you know, the hope that we have that we can introduce this into the U.S. safely is, is great. And um, I'm just thankful for the people that continue to support us, even though... You know, it takes a little longer than anyone wants it to be. That's, that's always the next question, like when? Um, and I always say we're a small team doing great things, and that's really what we're trying to do, and research takes time. And I think with that comes frustration. But, you know, I, it also allows us to see, like I said, how these patients are able to do now almost four years out. And um, it really builds upon 
our knowledge and just looking forward to to taking it to the next step. So what's next? Right now we've, you know, you haven't done science until you published it. So we're diligently working on our publications on this study. And then, like I said, we're working very hard with the VA in Washington and with the FDA to get this study, um, this lower limb study, into a larger population of patients. And at the same time, we're now working towards upper extremity. So the above elbow population. Um, they're a smaller population, but they actually sometimes wear their prosthetics even less because they're much harder to wear and put on acro- you know, with straps across their chest. So having something that can just click onto their bone is really going to be beneficial to that population. So we're really using everything we've learned from the lower limb and trying to then take it up to the upper limb. And at the same time, working to do a larger study to provide the POP implant to a larger population of patients. It's changing the amputee world. I'm, I'm excited for it. You know, it's, it's exciting to be on that ground level and know what it does for people and know what it can become. This concludes this episode of Upholding Valor. I'd like to thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe or rate us, or better yet, tell a friend to tune in by texting VETERANS to 57500 or go to ksl360.com slash veterans. If you'd like to do more to help America's veterans, you can visit saltlakecity.va.gov slash giving. We hope you join us for the next podcast, where we'll be bringing you inside the ever-changing world of modern nursing care.